Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. As we begin today, I'd like to give a big shout out to my friend, Austin Patton. Austin and I met and became friends 10 years ago when he was a university student. Two years ago, he was hit by a car while riding his bike, injured his spinal cord, and is now a paraplegic. I had lunch with him last week and was so impressed with his attitude and his approach to his new rearranged life. He wants to become a better speaker so he can share his story and use his circumstances in life to serve and help others have more faith in themselves. Austin, today I will share some of what I've learned about speaking in hopes that it can help you reach your goals. Now to everyone else, I hope this podcast helps you as well. I don't consider myself the best speaker or personality, but perhaps what we talk about today can help and inspire you to improve your speaking or presenting efforts as well. So wherever you're listening today, whether you're in the car, on your daily walk or run, or just part of your daily inspiration time, I hope today we can learn something that will help you as you strive to reach your goals and fulfill your purpose in life. As always, if you like what you hear, please share this with a friend. Send them the link, and that will help us further our mission. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about how to give the best speech of your life. If you travel to Adams County, Pennsylvania, you'll find a borough, now the county seat, named for Samuel Geddes, who settled there in 1761. This small crossroads, frequented by soldiers and traders, was eventually named Gettysburg. And over the years, except for the events of 1863, Little has happened to bring fame or acclaim to this town that now sits at the intersection of Route 30 and Route 15. But it is what happened in 1863, both during the Battle of Gettysburg in the first four days of July and the subsequent Gettysburg Address given 19 weeks later that would make Gettysburg a name every American child learns in school. The Battle of Gettysburg was by all accounts the turning point in the Civil War. And in that battle, a total of 165,000 men and women were engaged. There were 51,000 casualties, 23,000 on the side of the Union and 28,000 on the side of the Confederate in just a matter of days. Can you imagine? Almost one-third of those engaged would be killed or wounded. Now, just weeks earlier, after winning at Chancellorville, General Robert E. Lee led his troops the 75,000 Army of Northern Virginia, into Pennsylvania. And the depleted men were anxious to get there. The fertile fields of Pennsylvania and the residents there would provide food and supplies that they couldn't find any longer in Virginia. Well, Lee and his men arrived at the banks of the Susquehanna River on June 28th and waited for intelligence as to the location of Union troops. And when he received that intelligence, he ordered his men to Gettysburg to seize supplies of the Union Army. But they soon met Union General John Reynolds and were turned back. On the following day, the Gettysburg battle ensued with full-scale assaults on the nearby hills, including Little Round Top, East Cemetery, and Culp's Hill. The next day followed with an all-out Confederate assault, 
and the Confederacy, led by General Pickett, suffered 60% casualties. Well, repulsed by close-range Union fire, the Confederates retreated, and Lee withdrew his army from Gettysburg late on the rainy afternoon of July 4th and trudged back to Virginia with severely reduced ranks of battle-scarred men. The carnage from the three days of fighting was overwhelming. Both sides suffered immensely. As Lee retreated, President Lincoln assumed that General Meade would intercept them and force their surrender, but Meade didn't pursue. And Lincoln later lamented the lost opportunity given the price paid in loss of life. Now, these three days of fighting in July, including July 4th, Independence Day, represented the most casualties in any three-day period of the Civil War. Well, on October 14, 1863, an effort began to remove soldiers from the Gettysburg battlefield graves and rebury them in the National Cemetery at Gettysburg. And when the reinternment was underway, on November 19th, Abraham Lincoln, three cabinet members, and other officials traveled to Gettysburg to commemorate the sacrifice of the brave soldiers being laid to rest. Arriving the night before the ceremony, Lincoln was weak and felt dizzy. His coloring was a ghostly white. He was feverish and had a severe headache, and he would later be diagnosed with a mild case of smallpox. Lincoln is said to have written five drafts of his speech for the next day, each differing slightly in word choice, punctuation, and structure. Two of those handwritten copies are housed at the Library of Congress, one at Cornell, one at the White House, and the original at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. The Gettysburg Address is considered one of the most remarkable speeches in history, and certainly it's one of the most well-known in American history. Now, what makes this speech so remarkable? Well, the setting, the battlefield, and the number of dead who gave their lives for the cause of freedom gives way to the sacredness of the occasion. But the oratory, the cadence, and the speech itself was remarkable. No team of speechwriters contributed to the drafts of the speech. Lincoln himself was the author. And the speech was just 271 words. And of those words, 100 were one-syllable words, simple and poignant. Now, this in and of itself is quite remarkable and grabs the listener from the outset. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Great orators, when giving a speech, seek a cadence, a feeling by their use of words. And this Lincoln did exceptionally well. He didn't add anything to himself. The word I does not appear in the Gettysburg Address. He knew, altogether, that none of what was to be spoken that day was about him, something we rarely see in political speeches today. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, he said, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war, and we have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. 
Lincoln uses the word nation five times during his speech. He wanted his readers to prime and point their minds to the nation he was defending. Lincoln continues, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. But the world has remembered what Lincoln said there. Ironically, the speaker preceding Lincoln that day at Gettysburg was Edward Everett. He spoke for two hours compared to Lincoln's few minutes. Yet the world remembers none of what Everett said. Lincoln sought to add no glory to himself or to draw attention. His message had a purpose. Lincoln uses repetitive phrases to create effect. Did you notice? For example, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow. And by using this, we cannot, we cannot, but they consecrated and they hallowed format in his speech, he uses repetition and contrast to create sentiment and emphasis. Lincoln also uses contrasting statements, like those who here gave their lives that this nation might live, to more effectively teach and communicate. Contrasting helps listeners remember. He knew this was the first battlefield cemetery to be dedicated in this country, and he understood the sacred effect to be created by his way of speaking. And as a result, his words are carved in the wall of the Lincoln Memorial. The speech contains words that evoke the emotion of the day, dedicated, nobly, great, honored, devotion, highly resolved, God, birth, and freedom. He said, It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have, thus far, so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Eight times in the speech, Lincoln invokes the place, the hallowed ground of Gettysburg, by repeating the word here. And as a result, he weaves a sort of spell on the listeners that has a powerful effect to bring their minds to the place where they are standing. Great speaking is a developed talent. And every leader, like Lincoln, at some time or another, must speak to a team or a group or a family. And no doubt, everyone listening to this podcast today, along with me, wishes that they were a better speaker. As the famous saying goes, great speakers were not born, they were trained. So we too must learn that skill of speaking. And we all must learn sometimes the hard way. As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, all great speakers were bad speakers at first. I believe that. And also believe that everyone can become a better presenter. So let's take a few minutes and talk about how to make your presentations, your speeches, your messages more effective and memorable 
to those listening. Now, there are lots of authors and voice coaches clamoring to tell you about the formula for better presentations, and I won't try to repeat what they say. But today, let's focus on the important principles and areas of focus to help you become a better speaking version of yourself and help you give the best speech of your life. Now, in my opinion, the first and most important principle to becoming a better presenter is this. Like Lincoln, understand where you are and to whom you are speaking. You see, too often we don't consider the place or the audience. And so many speakers come at it from their own point of view or make it about themselves. And this gets in the way. It prevents the listeners from fully engaging. The Gettysburg Address was so memorable because Lincoln understood the circumstance, not only of the hollowed ground on which he stood, but also the loss experienced by so many families and the circumstances of his nation at the time. And I believe he was speaking on behalf of the souls who were buried there and not for himself, hence the lasting impact of his speech. So your physical surroundings should also dictate how you present. You know, every time I speak, I try to think carefully about where I will be and how I will be communicating. Here's a few simple examples. A few weeks ago, I spoke to the employees of a company in a large training room, and there were about 200 people present. There was no elevated stage, but a podium sat in front of the room. Well, I didn't use the podium. I wanted to connect personally, so I walked from one section of the room to the other, trying to make connections as I spoke. A week or two later, I spoke in a large convention center with a very large stage, and there were large screens with IMAG projection, projecting the speaker's image on the screen. And as a result, most of the room was not looking at the speaker on stage, but at the speaker's image on the screens to the side. Now, some speakers were walking back and forth as they spoke, never looking at the camera. And as a result, the audience only saw the side of their head on the screen, and they didn't fully connect. Well, I made a mental note, and when I went to stage, I stayed more stationary, looking into the camera most of the time. That way, I was looking at the audience directly when they looked at the screen. Now, if you're in a home or a small conference room, pay attention to where you sit. Sit where you can easily make contact with the listeners. Eye contact makes all the difference. And don't make your visuals the focus of the speech. Make the listener the focus. You see, sometimes we overuse visuals. And remember to whom you are speaking. That means what's their mindset? What do they care about? What's their mood or prevailing feeling? Let's say you're making a business presentation to a new prospect. Are they excited to hear what you have to say or reluctant? What do they care about? You see, this will guide your presentation, and you will give a different presentation depending on their view or feelings. So how do you find out about your audience and their feelings? Well, before the presentation, ask all the questions you can of your host. Not long ago, I was doing a paid speaking engagement in Arizona, and I talked with a company president, got his perspective, and then I spoke with the event manager and got her perspective, and I was still unclear as to the audience. So I arrived early, and I talked with a half a dozen people, asked questions, learned about them, and by the time the meeting started, I had a much clearer idea of how to approach the topic. So be willing 
to learn all you can about your audience. And then if necessary, be willing to leave your script so you can connect. Here's a simple example that I've shared before. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech was delivered to over 250,000 civil rights supporters from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And it was the defining moment of the civil rights movement. In his book, Behind the Dream, speechwriter Clarence Jones tells the story of what really happened that day. The story begins the night before the speech, Tuesday, August 27, 1963. There, a group of seven individuals, including Jones, had gathered with King at the Willard Hotel to add their input to his final speech. And King asked Jones to take notes and turn the notes into cohesive remarks that he would deliver from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Well, each person added their perspective, and the speech was a collection of those thoughts. The next morning, King's speech was finished and copies were delivered to the press. Now, fast forward a few hours later when King was delivering the speech. If you watch the video, you'll notice that King is looking down a lot in the first part of his speech because he's reading the text. A pleasant shock came over me, wrote Jones, as I realized that Dr. King seemed to be reciting what I had scrawled down the night before in my hotel room. In the seventh paragraph, however, something extraordinary happened. King paused. And in that brief silence, Mahala Jackson, a gospel singer and good friend of King's, shouted, Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. Well, few people heard her, with the exception of Jones and Ted Kennedy and, of course, King. And here's what happened next. Jones saw King push the text of his prepared remarks to the side of the lectern. He shifted gears in a heartbeat, abandoning whatever written text he'd prepared, and he gave himself over to the spirit of the moment. King improvised much of the second half of the speech, including the I have a dream refrain. It doesn't mean that King completely made up the words on the spot. In fact, King had delivered the now familiar refrain, or at least a version of it, two months earlier at Cobo Hall in Detroit. And Mahala Jackson knew that he was not connecting with his audience in the first part of his speech. They wanted to be moved. They were yearning for inspiration. And she knew the written script was keeping people from feeling that inspiration. She understood the audience and had the sense that a dream of what could be was needed to transform that speech into one of the greatest of our day. So, remember your audience. Now, what's the next principle of powerful speaking? Well, it's the start. How do you start a powerful speech? Well, as you think about how to start, think about the fact that typically, listeners arrive to your speech with a variety of mindsets. Everyone is coming from a different place in their thoughts. Some just came from a busy morning, others worried about their kids, and each from their own way of thinking. So you need to get their thinking on track to your topic. And that is the purpose of the start of any speech. In my mind, the worst thing most speakers do is to talk about how happy they are to be there or talk about themselves when they start. The nuance of that is, I care more about me than you. So don't do this. In the beginning of a presentation, you need to prime the listeners a bit so that they can follow you 
more intently. Priming brings the listener's mind into your mindset and gets everyone on the same track, so to speak, the same wavelength. Now, you can prime in a number of ways. Some people like to start with the right kind of humor. And if you have humor that sets up your topic, you can use that. Years ago, I was talking to a group about making a decision. And I ended that speech sitting on a fence while asking them to get off the fence. So I started the speech priming them with a joke that included a fence. One morning, a rancher was working on his fence when a federal agent pulled up, got out of his car, and announced, I'm here to inspect your ranch for illegally grown drugs. And the rancher pointed and said, okay, but do not cross that fence and go in that field over there. Well, the federal agent got red-faced and angry and says, Mr., I have the authority of the federal government with me. And reaching into his pocket, he pulls out his wallet, opens it up, and shows the rancher and says, see this badge, old man? This badge means I'm allowed to go on any land, cross any fence, and enter into any field I want. Have I made myself clear? Well, the rancher apologizes and goes back to his chores. A short time later, the old rancher hears screaming. He looks up and sees the federal agent is running through the field, chased by a huge Brahma bull. And with every step the agent makes, the bull gains two. And just a few seconds before the bull is about to step on the agent, the rancher stands up and yells to the agent, your badge, show him your badge. So at the beginning of this speech, I primed them with the story, and I told them their badge, their title on their business card, didn't determine their success. It was their resolve. It was their decision that would do that. And they had to make a decision, and that was the topic that we would speak about. Now, jokes are not the typical way to prime to start a speech. Most often, priming is a simple statement. When we started this podcast, I simply said, Today, I'd like to talk about giving the best speech of your life. That's an example of priming. Two years ago, two authors wrote a book called How to Speak Southern. And the first thing in that book was the dedication, which read, This book is dedicated to all Yankees in the hope that it will teach them how to talk right. That's an example of priming. Now, if I were doing a business presentation to a small group on my product line, for example, I might start with a short story like this. Two years ago, I sat where you're sitting. My friend was telling me about how to improve my health and some products that could really help me. She invited me to shop at her store and make a few life changes. And I was skeptical at first, but I followed her advice and it has made all the difference. And today, I'd like to share that same information with you. You see, this primes them to know that you have empathy for their skepticism, that they can be open, and to be willing to follow your example, and lets them know the scope, even, of what you'll talk about. Now, when you get to know the power of priming, you may use a story to prime your audience. Today, we started with the story of the Gettysburg Address, but priming does more than introduce a topic. It helps others turn off their train of thought and adopt your train of thought. And people don't give up their train of thought easily. So you have to bring them along, interest them, pique their curiosity, and prime them to want to listen. You know, a number of research studies have shown that stories or certain jokes cause a distributed neural system response in the listener's brain. 
If this story takes the reader from ambiguity to coherence, it causes them to use multiple regions of their brain. What does this mean? Well, it means that effective jokes or stories don't utilize just one area, and it forces connections to be formed in one area of the brain to the other. And these multi-stage connections light up our brain. And this causes our brain, causes us to crave another connection. It causes listeners to pay attention. Here's a simple story example from a famous graduation speech. As the story goes, there are two fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the opposite direction, who nods at them as he passes and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them asks the other, What the heck is water? The use of this unexpected ambiguity to coherent statement, where you realize the fish talk but aren't aware of water, causes your brain to immediately seek meaning. And you use more than one part of your brain to do it. And this is an example of bringing your audience out of their mindset to yours. And it works even better if you follow that fish story with the most important realities of life are often right in front of us, but we don't see them. And this causes the listener's brain to make another connection. Then they want to hear more because their brain craves connection. Now, this example is an extraordinary example and a good one, but you don't have to be extraordinary to learn how to use stories when you speak. You see, too often people don't tell a story in the best way. First, remember, the purpose of a story can be to prime, to set up a topic, to teach a principle, or to get the audience mapping with you. A story really isn't to add something to yourself. Too often I hear speakers tell personal stories and they're focused on sharing the story like an overzealous friend who just returned from vacation and wants to show you their vacation pictures. And they share every single exhausting detail about themselves. Well, it shouldn't be about you. It's about how you economically share a concept in a way that creates lasting effect. For example, if you're trying to teach your kids about faith in God, lose the desire to lay on too many details or make it about you. You see, your children get nuance and know and stop listening when they perceive it's about you. Here's a simple example. Perhaps you tell your daughter this, Kristen, what's most remarkable about you is that you have gifts, real gifts in your personality, your drive, your curiosity that I know didn't come from me or your mother. I've watched you cultivate those gifts and ask myself, where did you get them? Well, here's what I believe. God gave you these gifts to see what you would do with them in life, to see if you would magnify them and, in the end, use them for His good. And if you do, I know you will be an even more incredible person than you are today. Now, this is a story of sorts, and if my daughter Kristen heard this, she wouldn't think I'm a me monster or focused on myself. She would listen because it is authentically true, and she would leave with the sense that there is something divine, something from God in her. And she would also know that when I make sense of things, I use my faith in God to make sense of it. And she may eventually do the same. So, where do you find stories? Well, they're everywhere. You mine them. The way I find stories is this. If I'm going to speak, 
I try to be inspired or try to identify a topic, then outline my thoughts in a short outline. And that outline is simple, just a few sentences. It includes a topic and maybe two or three supporting principles I might, and I say might, teach. Then I go about my week thinking and pondering and keeping my eyes and ears open for stories that match what I'm thinking. And it's amazing how many stories come your way when you're watching for them. When you find a thought or a story, then note it in your phone or text the link to yourself or create a library of possibilities. So when you come to prepare the speech, you can use those possibilities or they will lead you to the right next story or thought. And stories don't have to be about famous people or even be personal to be powerful. The more they apply to the listener or make them think, the better. Now, I've thrown out a lot of stories because they don't fit or relate to my topic of the week. And not every story is a good story. But if you find a story that fits, then you have to paint the story. And painting the story has more to do with helping the listener picture the principle than being eloquent or poetic. You know, several podcasts ago, we told a story of a 17-year-old young woman who crashed her plane in Wyoming. I started the story by painting a bit, by describing the location where the crash took place. Now, near the crash site stands a cabin, built by Amelia Earhart, who tragically died in a plane crash. The irony of this young woman's crash last year, happening so close to Amelia Earhart's cabin, helped to paint and add color to the story. Now, by painting, you get the listener on your track and encourage them to listen more, to give you their attention. Next, use questions. So many presenters don't use questions, and they lose power as a result. Have you ever heard a speaker that just captured your attention? Have you ever given a speech, and just before you started, You started to breathe heavy. You were worried that you were going to forget what you prepared and you started to panic. Think about the speeches or talks that you've heard or read that affected you. What made them good? As I asked those questions, did the feeling of what I was saying changed? Well, all of these questions are examples of how you can enhance your speech through good questions. So ask questions to transition, to add power, to make a point. So after you've outlined your speech, go back over it and insert questions that bring the reader along, because no one wants to listen to a speaker who doesn't relate to the audience. Questions effectively say, I'm engaging with you, or I recognize that you're there, and this really is about you. Great questions also evoke a response. Now, on a podcast or in a big room, that response will be in the thoughts of the listener, but in person... You want to ask questions to get them to respond with you and engage. So, how do you ask questions in a way that brings about the right response? Well, that will be where we begin our next podcast. We'll explore the art of questioning, how to sound your best without memorization, how to teach without sounding like you're teaching, and how to avoid the pitfalls to which poor speakers fall prey. So, as we end today, Remember, all great speakers were bad speakers at first. And like Lincoln, if we focus on the listener and the place and the reasons for speaking and not on ourselves, we can begin to create a message that lasts. 
And like Lincoln, there are skills to be learned to help us improve our speaking. And some of those skills include starting your speech in the right way by priming the listener to think in the same mindset, to want to hear more, and to engage in the topic. Priming is a useful skill in all your business and family messaging. And when you learn to prime well, you can elevate your effectiveness in speaking. Priming is a useful skill in all of your speaking. And when you learn to prime well, you can elevate your effectiveness. And stories told in the right way help to bring the listener along. And the right questions in your speech tell the listener you know they are there. Well, I hope this helps you as you prepare for your next opportunity to speak. And on our next podcast, we'll learn a bit more. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.